ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Now, we've all heard of echo chambers, the metaphorical bubbles we create around ourselves, particularly on social media, that reflect our own politics and worldview. But are they real? Social media giant Meta opened its data up to researchers and what they found is fascinating. Speaking of social media giants, CEO of Twitter, uh, I mean X, Elon Musk, is in hot water again. But this time, it's his electric vehicle company, Tesla, in the firing line. Plus, some researchers say AI is going to take our jobs and it's women who need to be most concerned. Also, aliens, UFOs. What exactly was revealed in US Congress? All this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston here keeping Mark Fennell's seat warm for the next couple of months while he's off making what is certain to be multi-award winning content because that's what he does, (laughs) digging into this week's topics with me. It is a pleasure to welcome Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, AAP Future Transport Reporter. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And Cam Wilson, Deputy Editor at Crikey, the man who is chronically online, so we don't have to be. Great to have you back. Yes, good to take a break from online to be back on your radio. (laughs) So what happens when 17 academic researchers from 12 different universities are granted deep data access by Facebook to look at the idea of echo chambers fundamentally. Cam, what were the researchers looking to find exactly? So they were looking into the very vexed question about how, if at all, um, social media products affect our political views. And uh, as you mentioned, they were given some unprecedented access by Meta, the company that owns uh, Facebook and Instagram, as well as a couple of other social media platforms. I probably shouldn't say because by the time this episode gets out, there'll probably be another one. So, But they, they own a lot. What happened was they were given access to a whole lot of data that had happened in the past. I think it was about the data of 200 or something million users. In the three months leading up to the US presidential election, they were also given the ability to run experiments uh, on a smaller subset of users. And that included a trial between giving people their algorithmic feed and their chronological feed. So uh, you would see stuff instead of being based on uh, what time, you know, someone posted, if someone posted recently, you'd see it. They were given the, the standard feed of what's algorithmically chosen for you, as well as other trials of testing limiting um reshares from other people. So when people in your network share something, they limited that as well as I believe not giving any recommended content. All of this was to look into how these different features affect people's perceptions of their own political attitudes. And the result was after this huge investigation, that drum roll, they didn't really find that much of an effect at all. (laughs) It does sound like a fun experiment to conduct though. It would have been pretty interesting. So what kind of data did they actually use for these experiments, Jen? So as I understand it, they were given access to kind of aggregated data from from users over a three-month period. And this was from both Facebook and Instagram, which are slightly different beasts and, and slightly different audiences. 
it feels a little bit too much like Cambridge Analytica for me, to be honest. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think we've read from this script before, but this time it was official and apparently the people who were being experimented on, at least in participating in, in you know, studies and stuff, they were actually told, which is refreshing. And so, yeah, they, they were given access to also, um, you know, paid volunteers who would, um, you know, participate in, in having a look at chronological feeds, as, as Cam says. And it, it's interesting that it didn't come back with, you know, a, a big smoking gun out of all of this, that it kind of said... Yes, some of this has an effect, but it doesn't have a huge effect and, and essentially people are very ingrained in their political views. Um, that that was interesting and certainly wasn't the effect that we saw from Cambridge Analytica, if you can remember back that far. <laughs> yeah, it's not what we've come to expect from the concept of echo chambers. We, we do kind of feel like our brains are pretty malleable by our <laughs> news feeds. But is this the first time that we have actually seen this level of transparency from big tech? Has anyone opened up their data like this before to scrutiny? This was, I think, the first time they'd opened up this much amount of data. Um, and we should say that Meadow reacted to this by being like, aha, it's what we've been telling you this whole time. We don't actually have <laughs> that big of an effect on, on our users. But but the researchers who, who also commented on afterwards were a lot more measured about this, um, as researchers often are. They pointed out that, you know, this was a limited study. It was only three months. They pointed out the fact that, you know, now we've had these social media platforms for getting close to two decades. And so to look at a very small period um, at the end of this long period of people being on there for so long, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that these platforms haven't affected people's uh, political attitudes in the past, just that in the few months leading up to the US presidential election, maybe people already had like figured out, maybe they'd already been <laughs> impacted by these platforms. And so, you know, while I kind of said glibly, they didn't find that much at the start, I guess what they found was they're trying to put, um, you know, these things into context, which is that, you know, are you, if you go on Facebook or Instagram once, are you going to be radicalized into a left wing or right wing uh, uh, echo chamber straight away? Probably not, but they did find evidence of echo chambers. They did find evidence that um, algorithms show people more um, content, which is, I think, uh, untrustworthy. The question is, is how that actually affects political attitudes. And this is not a poll site podcast, so we won't get into it. But the, <laughs> but that is a very, very complex area. I mean, it makes sense, you know, politics is based on a whole bunch of things. We can at least say that, you know, using Facebook for a couple of months or Instagram isn't necessarily going to radically change your perspective. Jen, how has Meta or Facebook rather responded to these findings? Have they tried to, you know, swing it in their favour, say they're the good guys? Yeah, look, if, if if you were expecting them to throw up their hands and say, oh, my bad, no, that didn't happen. Um, and it, it, it will never happen. <laughs> no, you, you've got experience, that's why. Um, no, so, so Meta's really focused on the findings that um, show that, you know, changing its algorithm didn't radically change people's views, people's political views in particular. You know, they weren't responsible for um, creating massive echo chambers over this three-month period necessarily. They kind of downplayed the idea that, you know, they, they have an effect on elections in particular because especially around 20 2016, that was kind of a big deal. I did find it interesting that they this these studies didn't directly address the idea of misinformation and disinformation and foreign interference, which is where we really saw um, sort of the, the major shift in the 2016 US election. And so I don't think they can necessarily defend that aspect of it. But they did say that, you know, tweaking the algorithm and, and making sure that, you know, things th uh, show up chronologically is, is not necessarily going to, you know, fix these problems because as, according to them, there's not a huge problem to fix. Cam, what do you think needs to be done? 
the findings don't stand out to me as that they've missed what's happening here. Like, I think that this is probably a good capturing of what happens. And so I think on one hand, you can believe that maybe there isn't a huge effect individually, but considering we, you know, the scale of these companies, you know, Meta put out um, stats uh, last month saying that they now have 3 billion active monthly users on their platform. So, you know, about half the world use their stuff like every month. So they're enormous. This, even when you have this small effect on this very large amount of people, you can obviously have a major effect overall. So we should take all, all these things with a grain of salt when we hear people saying that people are being instantaneously radicalized. We should say, well, probably not, but overall they're having big impacts, I would say so, in which case the, the, the kind of... Um, the pressure that we've put on these companies to clean up their platforms, to think about what they're doing, to allow um, academics to actually study this stuff, that is actually a good thing and we should continue doing that and holding them accountable for the effects that they are having. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And it turns out electric car company Tesla has what they've called a diversion team. Jen, what's going on here? Oh, it's a great question. Um, it, it, was, it, was a fa- it was a fascinating look. So this is um, this all came about through uh, a Reuters investigation. And basically, uh, this Tesla diversion team is allegedly, or was allegedly, because it's no longer in existence, was an elite team of Tesla problem solvers. But um, the problems that they were solving were not for customers. So basically, people would complain that they weren't getting the amount of range, or the, their, their cars weren't travelling as far as the, the dashboard had promised, as, as Tesla had promised to essentially. And so they'd raise complaints. And this diversion team, their job was to make sure those complaints got cancelled. Um, and out of the, the 2,000 that would typically be made every week, the diversion team's job was to cancel about 750 of those. Oof. And I don't know, if, if I had a, a complaint about my car not travelling as far as it, it possibly should, I'd love to have that investigated. And the diversion team, allegedly again, was supposedly in, in charge of making sure that those things weren't investigated in some cases, were just outright cancelled if you didn't answer the phone, if you happened to be Gen Z and didn't trust anyone who was actually <laughs> calling your mobile phone rather than texting you. Guilty. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, it's it's a really disturbing uh, eventuality and and... Just really poor form from a company who is absolutely leading the market in electric cars and doesn't need to be doing this sort of stuff. There have been a plethora of complaints about Tesla over the years, many, many recalls, but I think range on an electric vehicle is possibly one of the most important measurements that you can have. You don't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere with no power, no way to get out. Cam, what repercussions could there be for Tesla for shutting these complaints down? So... The investigation shows that there has been actually a range of things that have happened in the past. They've been pinged by regulators in South Korea. The EPA in the US has told them to adjust their measures. Um, I think there's like widespread, you know, ramifications that could happen in a lot of places now that this is out. And I'm sure, you know, even places like Australia's ACCC is probably looking at Tesla being like, well, you promised these things and you actually knew that you weren't able to deliver what you said you were, which is sure seems like... Uh, deceptive conduct. I um I just think like it's it's so interesting because this combines like two things. There's the range problem with uh, EV and and electric vehicles uh, 
you know, all electric vehicles have issues with the cold because that's just one fact of physics that makes the batteries work. And also that's not that dissimilar to traditional cars either because they also have problems in the cold as well. It just, I think it's more uh, profound for EVs. But the difference is here is the way that Tesla treated its customers insofar as it, according to this investigation, the, the fact that it gives wrong estimations of how far you go, that was actually an edict from Elon Musk himself. Um, he wanted it so that when you're on the first 50% of your battery, it gives a rosy, uh, exciting range uh, estimation. And then when you get to the second half, that's when like the brass tacks happen and you're told, oh, actually, no, you need to get to a charging station earlier. I mean, in a way, you know, there were actually nothing wrong with these cars. It was just that they were being sold in the wrong way. And then they dealt with this not by solving people's problems, but by trying to gaslight them into being like, actually, no, we're fine. Everything's fine. You're the crazy one. Thank you for your tens of thousands of dollars. So this is effectively false advertising, really, isn't it? So is this a new thing for Tesla, Jen? I'd love to say it was a new thing, but no. Like, as Cam points out, uh, in, in South Korea, they, the company has actually been fined $2.2 million previously uh, for fading, failing to, to meet range promises. And, and certainly there's there's been investigations in in other countries as well. I would say, though, and I don't, I'm not going to defend this at all. It makes me quite mad, actually. Um, but we have seen similar behaviour from tech companies before. So from, you know, companies that make laptops, companies that make mobile phones, they test their batteries, for example, under really very positive conditions. So sure, your phone has 24 hours of battery life if you just don't use any of the features and you stay in one place and you don't touch it <laughs> and it's connected to Wi-Fi the entire time. But that's not a valuable measure for consumers. And that's not something that, that we should be sold a product on that basis. And the, the reason that this, this in particular makes me so mad is that it gives electric vehicles a bad name, all electric vehicles. And it, it sort of underlines that idea of range anxiety, which as soon as you've used one, you kind of, you get used to the range of the vehicle and it doesn't become an issue. But it's such a big hurdle in people's minds when they're swapping from a petrol car to an electric car. Tesla doesn't need to do this. They could just say the range of their vehicles and people would adapt to that. They've got sophisticated technology in these cars, in software in these cars in particular, that works incredibly well when it's allowed to work incredibly well. And you've got a market that's full of so much, they call it food, fear, uncertainty and doubt. <laughs> and it, they don't need to be, to be putting this out there when they sell the top two electric vehicles in the country by a long way. So I would really love someone like the ACCC, like some of the American authorities to come in and say, look, these are our independent tests. This is what we've done. This is what you can expect. It shouldn't take that, but maybe it's going to. I totally agree with everything you said, Jen. But the thing that I would also like point out is that although electric vehicles, like we mentioned before, do have these issues, according to the Reuters investigation, which also got public records through Freedom of Information requests about testing of other EVs, found that I think the vast majority of them, if not all of them, actually underpredicted their range. So while yes, you know, there are, you know, problems with range when you deal with things like temperature and that kind of thing, other manufacturers are able to give accurate uh, information about it. And it, to be honest, it seems like Tesla could, they're just choosing not to as part of their marketing. Did you have a response to that, Jen? It would be a scream, honestly. Like, I, I, they don't need to do this. Like, if you've if you've played, you know, count the electric vehicles on the road, which my family does, and, you know, 50 cents per electric vehicle. What? You, 
well, I'm going to be Emerald's family. Yeah, know, right? <laughs> Nobody actually collects, but, but uh, there's a massive tally there somewhere. It's the you new punch see... buggy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Spot yellow cars or electric vehicles. Um, you, you will see there's so many Teslas on the road mm. right now in Australia. Like, they're, they're more than 50% of the market. There's so many out there. They don't need to be playing marketing tricks. Mm. They could just show people what their cars actually do. And so it's just, it, it feels a little bit Twitter x esque like it just we, we don't we don't need anything more like just sell us the product that you've got we're happy to use it would it be fair to say that Tesla has taken a bit of a brand hit in recent years though you know they used to be so incredibly cool and I think now perhaps the Elon factor is contributing to people thinking that maybe they're not so cool oh yeah big time I spoke to um, some Tesla owners around the time that Elon Musk bought Twitter and I think more attention was given to some of his social views and a lot of them were quite upset. And it's interesting in Elon Musk's transformation into this kind of, you know, like a bit of a, like a right-wing figure in the US who's, you know, he helped launch Ron DeSantis, the one of the nominees for the Republican um, presidential uh, candidacy. Um, you know, he's done a whole bunch of other stuff that makes it clear he's more aligned with one side of politics. But EVs traditionally have been kind of a, a, on the left of politics. So it's, it's a really kind of confusing thing. But for people who've invested tens of thousands of dollars into Tesla, they also saw it as a bit of an investment into the mythos of Elon Musk. And these kinds of tricks, I think, damage that and make to them makes it feel like they've damaged the product that they have. Is it slowing down sales at all, though, Jen? I mean, it's hard to say if they'd be higher if it wasn't for Elon Musk's um, personal brand, but certainly they're, they're absolutely going gangbusters in Australia. I would point out, though, like I interviewed someone um, about their, their Tesla the other day and they went at, at, to great pains to explain that they bought it secondhand so no money went directly <laughs> to Elon Musk. And I've also seen you can buy these magnetised stickers that say, I bought this car before we knew how awful he is. <gasps> Honestly, that, that tells you a lot about some of the public sentiment. Definitely not all, but some of it out there. Ethical Tesla ownership. <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston, filling in for Mark Fennell for the next few weeks. And I am joined by Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, AAP Future Transport reporter, and Cam Wilson, Deputy Editor at Crikey. And there's new research out that says women in particular are more likely to lose their jobs to AI. So what jobs are actually at risk, according to this study, Cam? So there's a bunch of roles that are predominantly held by women, which includes uh, like office support, working in retail, customer service, cashiers, that this report, which is I think from um, Kinsey Global Institute, said are under threat from AI. It actually had this kind of very, I mean, I found remarkable figure and I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical of it that they reckon that eight out of 10 women by 2030 will be either forced to change role or potentially lose their job because of this. That's a huge number. It's an enormous number. But then when I read into the report a bit more, it actually pointed out that between 2019 and 2022, I think they said about nine and a half million women in the US had changed jobs or lost their jobs because of technological changes. And then they said this figure would be, they reckon, is like 12 and a half million by 2030. So I think like, you know, maybe if you count the fact that people are changing jobs a lot, 
maybe they've got a funny kind of way of counting it. I guess if you compare it to the historical count, however they're doing this, that didn't seem that incredible. But either way, you know, they are predicting an incredible amount of upheaval and they're saying that women are, I think, like uh, 1.5 times more likely to be affected by this than men because of the roles that they predominantly hold. So are these jobs really at risk, Jen? Possibly. Yes. And we've, we've already kind of seen some of the impacts that AI is having on different parts of the workforce. I think it, it's interesting that they're, they're really focusing on the effect on women on this. And, and obviously those statistics are outlandish and, and amazing and we'll see if that happens. There's, there's large parts of the female workforces that I imagine won't be affected. So women are overrepresented in uh, industries like childcare and teaching, for example. And I don't think that we're at a place where we really want to put AI in charge of kids. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe the kids in charge of AI, maybe that's more likely. Um, I mean, possibly. We we have already seen jobs being displaced by AI. If you've had a look at job ads recently, there's been a a disturbing number of jobs where, you know, they want people to create prompts for for chat GPT. And, like, if if that's where we're at, I'm not really sure if I want that job. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite possible that a lot of jobs will be displaced or will just change as a result of the use of this technology. So, Kim, what is the solution here? How do we stop women and everyone losing their jobs to artificial intelligence? I guess turn off all the computers. Maybe that's a way. <laughs> Go back to the land. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sceptical of, of that number, but also I, I always am kind of, um, I say, bearish about these estimations about how these jobs are going to be lost because of AI, because I think that we've actually seen throughout history, less often do you see massive jobs losses, but more often massive job changes and maybe less hiring in some area and that kind of thing. I don't think in dra- like we're going to wake up tomorrow and a whole bunch of people are going to be made redundant for this. So I think like if we view it like in terms of jobs today versus uh, the jobs in 2030, how many of them are drastically different? That might be more the case. But I think like, you know, this kind of comes back to what AI does, which is that, you know, if you've used ChatGPT or another one of them, you might uh, try and do something that you're not familiar with. You're like, code me this or write a poem of this. And it's quite good to the layperson. But if you're a professional and you see it do something that you do, so like in the case of me, like write it, I'll be like, write a newspaper article about this. <laughs> I'm often like, this isn't very good. So I think when you view AI not as maybe replacing jobs, but as in, in terms of like aiding jobs and what could it do to maybe get rid of some of the busy work that you do. A great example is today, I think it was reported that News Corp in Australia, they reckon they're putting out now 3,000 articles a week that are done by AI. These aren't investigations. These aren't interviews. These are what is the weather today in Penrith? What Mm -hmm. is the weather today in Sydney CBD? That kind of work, I think, um, will hopefully, if you want to be optimistic, free up people to do more interesting things. So I think how do you stop people from losing their jobs? more training, more understanding about what makes people, you know, more useful than just like data entering computers. Is that your perspective as well, Jen? Yes, but also I'd like to see it made more transparent when this technology is being used. So like News Corp today, they have said that they're going to tag stories where they do that. And I think that's important because some of these these stories, I mean, as Kim says, they're really stilted as well. And it, it can make you very judgmental of whoever's got the byline that happens to be on that story. <laughs> I don't think we're going to uh, win a walkway anytime soon for those ones. No, <laughs> I have written a few weather stories in my time. But but no, we, I think we, we do need to be really transparent about when the use of, of AI is in play. I think there needs to be really strict rules about what data is fed into these things and what the data security is around that. 
government has, you know, been talking about these sorts of rules, but government moves slowly and technology moves fast. And I think we really need to be careful about that. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology, culture and UFOs. Mm. Now, I just got back from working on a project in a remote community with zero internet access for three weeks. And the first thing I see upon opening the internet when I returned is that Mulder from the X-Files was right. Cam, (laughs) please fill us in. What has been claimed in US Congress? Yeah, so last week there was a Congress hearing where it featured a bunch of people who said that uh, UAPs, which is, is it unidentified anomalous phenomenon, which is the, the new lingo for, for what we used to call UFOs, they said they're real. They, some of them said that they'd seen them. Others, including one whistleblower, claims that um, people in the US government are not only uh, collecting alien uh, uh, stuff, but also they're covering it up and even hinted at maybe someone might have been murdered over it. Uh, I know. (laughs) Yes, I, I share your disbelief. And in doing so, they kind of all were making the claim that there is more stuff out there. Now, not to get too much into the meta part of this, but some of the way that this has come across in the media, I think has kind of maybe given it a bit more credibility than it, some of this might have deserved because it was in Congress and because people who kind of spoke there actually did seem very legit. But I think once you drill down and you kind of see that, I wouldn't say we have a smoking gun, that, you know, that there's alien life out there, but at least there's an indication that people are now more seriously taking accountability from government and being like, if people are reporting this stuff, let's actually find out what we actually know versus I think the very hush-hush way that it's been treated in the past. So what actually falls under the category of a UAP, Jen? Basically, it's a rebranding. I think it's still kind of UFO-like. So we're still talking about things that people couldn't necessarily identify or explain. There was a a really interesting one that came up from 2004, which apparently looked like a big hovering tic-tac. (laughs) <laughs> um, it all comes down to that sort of the, the vibe, really, because there were there were no pictures, there was no extra classified documents mm. that were put out as a result of this. We heard from a lot of people who said that they'd seen something unusual. There was also a, a former US Air Force intelligence officer who said that the government had likely been looking into non-human activity since the 1930s, which is very X-Files, and, and mm. I felt like fiction and, and fact were melding at that point. But but we still don't have any real clarification on, on how legitimate these things are. So, Cam, what benefit would there be for the US or for any global government, really, to be hiding knowledge of UFOs or, or UAPs, of, as we have to call them yes, now? Yes, yeah. I mean, the, the paranoid perspective is that, uh, you know, maybe there's alien technology that they don't want in the hands of their enemies or, or maybe, in, you know, unscrupulous companies. Tech billionaires, Tech perhaps. billionaires, you know. I, I mean, I think that's the kind of case against it. The idea that the government could somehow cover this up, I think in, in 2023, seems really unlikely to me. NASA's also going to put out their report into UAPs. Is it going to have anything exciting in it, Jen? I want to believe that it will, Um, (laughs) but I am also sceptical, not just by profession, but legitimately over this one. It might explain some of the things that some people have seen. There might be sort of, you know, atmospheric conditions that are referred to. I don't know how many actual instances it will sort of define as, as being a genuine UAP, UFO, however it's branded that week. Um, I, I want, yeah, I want to believe, I want to believe we're going to get a report at the end of all of this that says there are genuine things that we can't explain, but I don't think we're going to sort of 
get the the smoking man. We're not we're not going to necessarily lift the covers of all of the things the X Files <laughs> wow. promised us back in the nineties. <laughs> um, I think that maybe if you get your hopes up, it'll be a letdown. So just pretend you're going in to see um, Hot Tub Time Machine and your expectations are low, and you'll be pleasantly surprised at the end when you actually laugh. <laughs> Look, I need some excitement in my life. I've got a bingo card to complete. I want these aliens. I'm gonna go on the side of there's something out there. I do believe I want to see the reports from NASA. Thank you very much. But that is all that we have time for on the show today. A big thank you to Jennifer Dudley Nicholson, AAP Future Transport Reporter. A pleasure to have you as always. Thank you so much. And also Cam Wilson, Deputy Editor at Crikey. Thank you for joining us. Wonderful to have you. Good to be here. Now, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it, we're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes, once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.